Welcome to this week's edition of the Conspiraporn Podcast, brought to you by www.conspiraporn.com. My name is Mad, and I'll be your host today uh, for this episode number six. Uh, now, I've stated before that this podcast will have no particular themes or format. It might come out weekly, sometimes more, sometimes less, and the episodes could be anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour. I'm not going to follow any standard procedure here. But for today's episode, I am going to take some time to cover one specific theme in general, and that is in regards to the history of ufology and a handful of the cases and reports that I find the most intriguing or interesting or that I'd like to offer a little perspective on, which is um, not normally covered when discussing some of these accounts. And I also want to say uh, I'm not really going to try and tackle the topic of ancient aliens in today's episode. Uh, while I'm open-minded to all sorts of possibilities, I am not a proponent of ancient alien theories, uh, at least not as they are proposed in pop culture. Now, <clears throat> I'd like to stop here in this introduction and take a quote from one of my absolute favorite books about ufology, and one that is considered a classic, and that is a 1997 work entitled The Alien Agenda by the late author Jim Mars. Now, I first read this book uh, 15 or 20 years ago, and to me, it has always been one of the most cohesive and well-researched books on the subject of UFOs. Jim Mars was the author of several scholarly and journalistic works, including the classic Rule by Secrecy, uh, which covers the gamut of secret societies and their influence on modern-day events, as well as the book Crossfire, which is considered a must-read in regards to topics surrounding the JFK assassination. So while I will be utilizing a diverse range of books and resources for today's episode, it is the alien agenda that I would most like to credit as an influence, and I will be uh, using some references to some other books that I will relay at the end of today's podcast. Um, that being said, I'd like to start with a quote from the alien agenda by Jim Mars uh, from the introduction of the book. <clears throat> the controversy over the existence of UFOs is over. UFOs are real. Only those persons whose outlook prevent them from dealing honestly with the massive amount of documentation reports collected over the past five decades, only those persons still cling to the idea that nothing soars in the sky of Earth but man's imagination. 
Evidence accumulated over the past half century clearly indicates that UFOs represent real and tangible objects exhibiting traits beyond anything that man can yet produce. Of course, arguments uh, and protestations will continue. There are, after all, some few folks who still refuse to believe that the world is round. But whether you believe in them or not, UFOs are now a part of our reality. Gather more than one uh, gather more than a half dozen persons in a room, and odds are at least one of them has either had a personal UFO experience or knows someone who has. UFO sighting stories permeate our society, from migrant farm workers to former presidents. We are surrounded by UFOs. They are with us in books, comics, advertising, movies, televisions, on posters, shirts, billboards, trinkets, and bumper stickers. There are those who still prefer to ignore the phenomenon and hoping it will simply go away and stop intruding on their comfortable worldview. Others are deeply fascinated by the reality of what UFOs might portend. UFO researchers, organizations, and conventions continue to grow throughout the world. The questions now are, what are they and what do they want? What is the alien agenda? And I again wish to state here that while I highly recommend the works of Jim Mars, I definitely do not agree with everything he presents. Uh, but today's episode, among other sources I'll provide at the end of the podcast, today's episode is heavily influenced by the alien agenda. So I hope you'll check that book out if you want a more detailed and extensive uh, bit of information on all of these subjects. Uh, that being said... It is quite fascinating that going back hundreds of years to medieval times, we have reports of little people from across the globe and going by various names and representations. And while there are dozens of names and attributes, uh, for our purposes today, I'm going to refer to this as falling into the family of the Fae or the realm of fairies. We have reports of fairy rings or fairy circles mysteriously appearing in crops for hundreds of years. Likewise, we have reports of fairies abducting children or humans for purposes of interbreeding. We have accounts of missing time due to fairy abductions. We have accounts in folklore of strange and bizarre lights seen in the sky in wooded areas centered around the belief in little people or fairies. And this folklore goes back hundreds of years. Now, I really have no other point with this but to set the stage for today's episode and to relate how mythology has changed in the 20th, 20th century and the 21st century. Uh, but the reports of these mysterious sightings and even abductions share many common elements uh, between uh, ancient sightings of little people, uh, or what we would call the Fae, with the commonality of crop formations, strange lights, abductions, uh, reports of missing time, interbreeding and human experimentation, and an unmistakable correlation to many modern-day UFO reports and sightings and abduction cases, uh, which have otherwise been dubbed as the study of ufology. In fairy lore, as well as UFO lore, we have elements of the shapeshifter and the trickster, and a dreamlike recollection to a communion with a hidden and mysterious other world and other realm. The topic of UFOs, or otherworldly visitation, spans back thousands of years. Ufology uh, has always been in the periphery of the human psyche on some level, be it through folklore, mythology, or artwork, or even monument building. We have themes of so-called skywalkers and notions of extraterrestrial or interdimensional superhumans and nearly immortal gods going back to the dawn of mythology. 
Uh, we could cover the idea stretching all the way back to the godly alien visitors related to Sumeria and the Anunnaki uh, 5,000 years ago. And everything that has happened from now to then for hours and hours, and we'd still only scratch the surface of this topic. Today's podcast, which is uh, Conspiracy Porn Episode 6, is only meant to casually touch upon a certain time period and a few key events. So again, aside from touching briefly on some information, this episode by and large is going to focus on the past 100 years or so of UFO, uh, UFO reports and not delve uh, too much into supposed historical accounts that precede the 1800s. Uh, once again, I stated I'm not a proponent of the ancient alien concepts, though I understand why so many people find them fascinating. Uh, I'd like to focus on some of the more modern events and provide a little background information and perspective on 20th century and 21st century UFO reports. This absolutely in no way is meant to represent a complete picture, but there are a few cases which stand out to me and that I would like to discuss today. <clears throat> and the timing of this episode comes as we have continually heard over the past year or two reports that the Pentagon is about to release the motherload of information on UFOs and that they supposedly have unmistakable proof of otherworldly vehicles and technology and uh, are releasing videos, uh, evidence of UFOs all the time. And we can only ask ourselves uh, why their stance has taken on such a dramatic turn in the past year and why we should ever believe a single damn word that comes from the officials at the Pentagon who have been lying to and deceiving the American public for decades. Uh, but yet here we are, with uh, many recent reports from the top Pentagon officials and politicians that they are about to release evidence of UFO involvement and even uh, evidence of UFO craft, of which uh, certain astrophysicists are supposedly stating that could not possibly, possibly be of Earth origin. Uh, as with so many things, I think we're dealing with a, a decades-long psyop here, a psychological operation. And even the continuation of a centuries-old psyop and a millennia-long psyop, uh, but that is for each person to come to their own conclusions. I'm not trying to make up anybody's mind here. I'm just trying to prevent, uh, provide some information and a little bit of my own perspective. Uh, but I hope that when we're dealing with all these topics of ufology, that people will keep an open mind, but not so open that their brains fall out. Uh, likewise, I'm really not interested in talking about Roswell in today's episode. I know that is considered the penultimate UFO report in American culture, uh, but it's been done to death already, and after the supposed siege on Roswell, which is supposed to have taken place a couple years ago, it's all become a little bit of a parody topic. And perhaps that was the point of the movement to occupy Area 51, uh, which was, was to make it all kind of seem like a comical joke and a parody. And I also want to state for those uh, who may be researching UFO uh, and ufology for years or decades, those people who have already been researching these topics, uh, as I have, None of this information is really going to be anything new for you today. I'm not going to blow the lid off of anything, uh, but per perhaps I will provide a few bits and pieces of some key elements which are often overlooked in relation to this topic and these specific reports. This is to serve more as a refresher course on this information more than anything else. So let's dig into the first event, which I would like to discuss today, and that is uh, most often noted as the first major UFO report in the United States, uh, which is the controversial 1897 crash in Aurora, Texas, which predates the Roswell event by some 40 years. 
Over the course of the year, there had been reports of a cigar-shaped craft sailing the skies over the United States, uh, but it was on April 17, 1897, on a clear and cool day in North Texas, when out of the south, a large silver cigar-shaped object was reported dropping down lower and lower as it approached the small town of Aurora, Texas. The craft was reported to have struck a windmill and exploded with scattered debris in uh, all direction. Uh, this was covered in all of the local newspapers at the time, and here's one of the official reports dated April 19, 1897, quote, About six o'clock this morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of an airship which had been sailing throughout the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer to Earth than before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order, for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually, sa and gradually sailing towards the Earth. It sailed over the public square, and when it reached the north part of town, it collided with Judge Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank, and destroying the judge's flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one aboard, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that it was not an inhabitant of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, the U.S. Signal Service Officer at this place and an authority on astronomy, gives us his opinion that he was a native of the planet Mars. Papers found on his persons, evidently the records of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. This ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive of power. It was built of an unknown metal resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver, and it must have weighed several tons. The town today is full of people who are viewing the wreckage and gathering specimens of strange metal from the debris. Um, the pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow, and this was signed E.E. E. Hayden from, from one of the local newspapers, and that's the end of the official report. Um, let's see. A similar story was published in the Fort Worth Register, uh, but this account simply states, quote, the pilot, who was not an inhabitant of this world, was giving, uh, given a Christian burial in the Aurora Cemetery, end quote. <clears throat> Now, the thing to note about this is that while uh, there are many interviews conducted with individuals over the years who can corroborate that something did indeed take place in Aurora, Texas on April 17th, uh, the supposed gravestone of this extraterrestrial was never properly identified, uh, nor do we know where all of the crash debris might have ended up. The most striking thing about all this is that it's a part of what has been dubbed the Great Airship Mystery of 1896 and 1897, in which tens of thousands of people supposedly reported seeing a ship or several ships uh, ranging from speeds of a reported 5 miles per hour to 200 miles per hour. Uh, the reports began in California and eventually made their way across the United States. Now, to sedate that something was traveling at speeds of 200 miles per hour in 1897, uh, when trains were only traveling at about 40 miles per hour at the time, and the first airplane fight, uh, flight wasn't to be famously flown until 1903, uh, it's quite a controversial statement to say that something was traveling at 200 miles an hour, uh, yet thousands of people reported something which was traveling at very high speeds in the sky, uh, though of course they really would have had nothing to measure or estimate the claim of 200 miles per hour. And to keep in mind with all this, um, while the first dirigible or blimp flight isn't truly noted until the Zeppelin came along in the year 1900, uh, the first known dirigible flight actually took place in 1852. 
which was 51 years before the Wright brothers. So while they were small and slow and had limited capabilities, uh, the floating dirigible had been invented in 1852 and was capable of speeds of around 6 miles per hour. Um, so along with all this, it should be noted that a couple of decades before the Aurora sightings, in 1878, a farmer in Denison, Texas, by the name of John Martin, reported to see a dark flying disc high in the sky, according to the Denison Daily News. And this is the first time that the term flying saucer came into play, which had been uh, now the common term for UFOs for over 140 years. Uh, so the term UFO uh, supposedly first came about in 1878. Um, and the reports did not end at the supposed crash in Aurora, Texas. The great airship mystery continued for days after the reported event, with sightings reported from 21 different towns in Texas. And uh, after all these years and many interviews uh, that were conducted with witnesses who, who were still alive back in the 1970s, uh, we still have no definitive proof of what might or might not have occurred uh, in Aurora in 1897. Uh, the consensus seems to be split right down the middle as being uh, either legitimate or a hoax or a ploy to sell newspapers or to help make Aurora a tourist attraction for people who wanted to look for the gravesite of the being from another planet. Uh, for all indications, any reports that came out in regards uh, to what metal or materials uh, that were found and the crash debris that might have been ex examined all came up as either being standard materials of Earth origin or inconclusive in their findings. <clears throat> and... While there were reports that uh, there had once been a grave marker uh, for the alien creature, uh, the headstone has long since disappeared, and there is no evidence of where this being might be buried, if it was buried at all, in the Aurora Cemetery. So this is one of those cases that, which is fascinating, yet completely inconclusive. Uh, we have varying reports of reliability or plausibility that coincide with a rash of sightings of a cigar-shaped object taking place all across the country in the late uh, 1890s. Uh, and much of this could have been media hype, which uh, fueled people to help make false claims in order to get a little attention or a little notoriety. And as I stated before, the flying dirigible had been invented several decades before uh, the great airship mystery of 1896 and 1897 took place. Now, I'm not making this statement to debunk the entire ordeal, because it is uh, fascinating, and it does capture the imagination. Uh, but my final analysis would be that there are uh, more probable explanations for these sightings and the supposed crash in Aurora, Texas. Uh, just very worth noting in the fact uh, that it was the first time UFO mania really gripped the public mindset of the United States uh, over a decade before the Wright Brothers' famous flight and over 40 years before the famous events of Roswell, New Mexico and all the hype surrounding Area 51, uh, though these stories are very similar. Now, we're going to jump ahead several decades here. Uh, for while there were still various reports of so-called ghost ships in the sky and incidents of strange lights and sightings, we really don't get into more substantial claims and accounts until the years uh, when World War II was in full swing, which brings us to a pretty bizarre case that has been proven as factual, but uh, has also been pretty much swept under the rug, and that is what has been deemed as the Los Angeles Air Raid of 1942. 
It was in February of 1942, just a few months after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, and most Americans were living in the anxiety of an imminent attack on U.S. soil. Uh, air raid sirens and drills had been routinely conducted in the months after the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, but it was on February 24th at 2.25 a.m., and Los Angeles County residents were rudely awakened by the wail of air raid sirens. While many believed these sirens to just be another drill, they were unaware that the military radar had picked up several blips from incoming aircraft that were about 120 miles west of Los Angeles. According to reports, at least 1,430 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition were fired at these incoming craft, uh, yet no planes were ever discovered as being shot down, and there was no return fire or bombs dropped. Uh, no military casualties were reported, and no Army or Navy planes were ever deployed during this whole ordeal. Uh, yet the anti-aircraft firing went on for about an hour and caused considerable damage to several homes and public buildings. The entire city was reported littered with pieces of metal and exploded shells, and at least six civilians died as a result of automobile accidents or heart attacks that were attributed to the massive bursts of gunfire. Uh, the air raid was never officially called off until 7.21 a.m. Uh, the next morning. Uh, while the military took the official stance that jittery nerves were to blame for the anti-aircraft assault and damage done in Los Angeles County, and they tried to quickly sweep the event under the rug, uh, yet further reports by eyewitnesses uh, living on the West Coast told of fast-moving red or silver objects high in the sky, which were accompanied by larger and slower-paced objects which hung motionless in the sky, while anti-aircraft shells exploded all around them. A reporter, a reporter by the name of Peter Jenkins, who was uh, on the staff of the Los Angeles Evening Herald Examiner at the time, is on record as stating, quote, I could clearly see the V formation of about 25 silvery planes overhead and moving slowly across the sky toward Long Beach. While Long Beach police chief at the time, uh, J.H. McKelland, uh, stated that along with an experienced naval observer, they both watched from the roof of City Hall and that they counted nine planes that were silver in color that took a long flight path while ammunition exploded all around them. Another report, this one coming from a Paul T. Collins, uh, while he was employed, uh, an employee of the Douglas Aircraft Company, stated that he observed several unidentified red objects appearing from nowhere and zigzagging from side to side, and that he estimated the speed of the craft to be approximately five miles per second. Now, thousands of eyewitnesses, uh, thousands of eyewitnesses reported uh, similar observations of these events uh, that night. Yet the Los Angeles air raid of 1942 was quickly forgotten as the war escalated and attentions were focused elsewhere. Uh, with the U.S. government basically stating that this event never transpired, uh, there is likely no one left today alive in 2021 who uh, would have been old enough at the time in 1942 to remember any of these events taking place. Uh, but they are on record as having happened. Uh, but these events, they lead us to the next chapter in our story, and that is with the so-called Foo Fighters and experimental aircraft of Nazi Germany. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time in the discussion of Nazi Foo Fighters, uh, because like the topic of Roswell in Area 51, this has been done to death, and the issue just keeps going around in circles. And if you've ever spent 10 minutes watching the History Channel, you've undoubtedly heard tales of Hitler's experimental Foo Fighters. Um, 
But I would like to take a brief moment on this topic because I undoubtedly 100% believe that the Nazis were developing experimental aircraft. Uh, the real questions that remain about this fact is just how developed were these aircraft and how advanced were their capabilities. Now, we have dozens of reports coming out of Allied territories during World War II, which make mention of these so-called Foo Fighters, which many believe is a bit of a bastardization of the French word fay, feu, F-E-U, uh, which is the French word for fire. Uh, also related to fuego. So basically what we're talking about here is fire in the sky. Uh, firefighters uh, are often reported as strange balls of orange light, which come in several shapes, the most prominent being saucers or bell-like objects. Uh, report from January 2nd, 1945, in the edition of the New York Herald Tribune, stated, quote, Now it seems the Nazis have thrown something new into the night skies over Germany. It is the weird, mysterious Foo Fighter balls that race alongside the wings of Allied aircraft which are flying intruder missions over Germany. Pilots have been uh, countering these eerie weapons for more than a month in their night flights. No one apparently knows what this sky weapon is. The balls of fire appear suddenly and accompany the planes for miles. They seem to be radio-controlled from the ground, so official intelligence reports reveal. <clears throat> End quote. And again, while there are dozens of reports coming out of World War II in regards to these Foo Fighters or eerie balls of light, uh, there was never really any conclusive evidence to support how technologically advanced these crafts might have been. Uh, for all intents and purposes, their presence was usually used more as a psychological tactic in order to cause anxiety and confusion, or perhaps they can be compared to modern-day drones which were used for spying or purposes of collecting information. Uh, while we do have reports of mysterious craft making sudden turns or being able to keep up with other aircraft of the day, uh, nothing substantial has really come forth in terms of reports of these Foo Fighters traveling at any unbelievable speeds or being capable of anything that is truly extraordinary, aside from being hard to identify and mimicking Allied flight patterns. Uh, some researchers, uh, researchers have speculated that these Fuhrer balls or fireballs were being piloted via remote control, and they were designed to interfere with radar operations of Allied bombers, and were powered by a special turbojet engine that was flat and circular in operation and which generated a luminous halo of flame. A uh, respected British historian uh, by the name of Barry Pitt, uh, he's known and he wrote extensively on the events surrounding World War II. Uh, he died uh, in the age of 87 in the year 2006, uh, but he is on record stating, quote, the Nazi war machine swung into action utilizing as much of it as it could of the more up-to-date scientific knowledge of available. And as the war developed, the list of further achievements grew to staggering proportions from guns, firing shells of air to detailed discussions of flying saucers from beams of sound that were fatal to a man at 50 yards to guns that fired around corners and others that could see in the dark. The, it, this is awe-inspiring in its variety, and while some of the German technology was less developed, some was dangerously near to completion stage, which could have reversed the war's outcome. End quote. Now, needless to say, we can question just how advanced the flight systems of the Nazi forces had become by the end of the war, <clears throat> or if they were experimenting with certain anti-gravity technologies. Uh, there's ample evidence that they had developed the Foo Fighter as well as ex experimental saucer-shaped craft, uh, which would appear to be a bit beyond the concepts of the Allied forces and technology at the time. Uh, so there's very little doubt in my mind that when we're dealing with the UFOs in the mid to late 20th century, uh, the scientists and engineers out of Nazi Germany play prominently 
in the development of certain rocket systems, engine systems, and weapon systems. Um, there was definitely uh, a reason uh, that the United States pardoned some 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians through Operation Paperclip uh, after the end of the war and leading up to 1959, in which they were all invited to go work for NASA in developing rocket systems. <clears throat> and Operation Paperclip was a secret U.S. government program because they didn't want the general public knowing uh, that they'd employed some 1,600 Nazi war criminals to work for the space program. And those war criminals surely brought their knowledge of any experimental craft and technology and weaponry with them. And maybe someday we'll devote an entire episode to the involvement of U.S. groups like IBM and groups like IG Farben and many other prominent figures and U.S. corporations and businesses who also funded Hitler's war effort. Uh, but that is an episode for another day. Uh, regardless, I want to leave World War II and the Foo Fighters behind to move forward in the narrative of modern-day ufology. Uh, but it goes without saying that the inventions out of Nazi Germany plays very prominently in the lore of UFOs and unexplained aerial phenomena, uh, which takes us forward a mere two years after the end of the war, which is widely regarded to be the first real mainstream account of a UFO sighting with the events of June 24th, 1947, and the witness of a respected American aviator and businessman, Kenneth Arnold, who reported seeing nine unusual objects flying, uh, sometimes in formation, over Mount Rainier, Washington. He subsequently wrote two books on the matter, entitled The Real Flying Saucers and The Coming of the Saucers, both published in 1952, and he was an outspoken advocate against USO secrecy and cover-up going into the 1970s. And the sightings of Kenneth Arnold gained nationwide attention and was followed very shortly after the next month, and in fact the very next week, with the infamous, infamous events of the alleged crash in Roswell, New Mexico, in July of 1947. And again, I'm going to not, uh, I'm not going to focus much time uh, on the event of Roswell today, except to say that this is essentially uh, the beginning, or at least the known beginning, of the FBI and CIA's involvement in reported UFO sightings and crashes. Uh, the FBI, I mean the CIA, the CIA itself, uh, was founded in 1947, just two months after the reported crash at Roswell. Uh, so all this, we have the creation of things uh, like Project Blue Book, uh, which was an attempt by the U.S. Air Force to thoroughly investigate UFO sightings and reports, uh, but mostly for the purpose of publicly debunking these events. And in any case, I'm sure the sightings and occurrences could indeed be debunked. I'm sure a lot of them were able to easily be debunked. Uh, but Project Blue Book was infamous for declaring that most UFO sightings uh, was either re related to being swamp gas or the planet Venus being wrongly identified as a UFO. Uh, the explanations given many times in order to debunk UFO sightings were just as comical and ludicrous and preposterous as the sightings themselves. However, from 1952 to 1969, when Project Blue Book was disbanded, it had collected roughly 12,600 reports of UFO-related events, of which 701 of them were classified as unexplained and still open to further investigation. Let me repeat that. Uh, from 1952 to 1969... When Project Blue Book was supposedly disbanded, it had collected roughly 12,618 reports of UFO-related events, of which 701 of them were classified as being unexplainable and still open to further investigation. And while Project Blue Book might have officially ended in 1969, at least publicly, rest assured that the study and research of UFO phenomena continued 
uh, on an official level. And that all brings us to the now in the year 2021, in which the Pentagon is currently stating that it not only has video evidence and proof of extraterrestrial craft, uh, but it also has advanced technology in its possession, which can't possibly be of earthly origin. Now, aside from uh, the events of Kenneth Arnold in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, perhaps the most intriguing reason for the birth of Project Blue Book uh, happened in 1952, uh, July 19th, 1952, when more than eight UFOs were tracked on radar at both Andrews Air Force Base as well as the Washington National Airport. Uh, the objects were reported to be flying at speeds between 100 to 130 miles per hour and then increased to a velocity far greater than those speeds, all while being uh, on radar for several hours and within Washington's most restricted airspace, passing over both the Capitol building as well as the White House. Uh, this event had been preceded by a buildup of UFO reports and sightings, which had been taking place across the East Coast for several months, and newspaper headlines at the time had titles like Fiery objects outrun jets over the Capitol. Investigation veiled in secrecy following a vain chase. And uh, jets alerted for saucers. Interceptors chase lights in D.C. skies. The sightings continued over the coming days with reports that U.S. jets were unable to keep up with the speeds and maneuvers of the mystery objects that were lighting up the night skies. Um, attempts at debunking the sightings and the official reports eventually came to the conclusion that it was some type of temperature inversion in the upper atmosphere that was playing with the radars and causing false blips, but no official explanation was ever reached in regards to the mysterious sightings over Washington, D.C. in 1952. The next step on our journey in the history of ufology, at least in terms of sightings and accounts in the United States, takes us to perhaps one of the most bizarre and weird and intriguing examples, and that is the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter in Kentucky on August 21st, 1955, also known as the Hopkinsville Goblins case and the Kelly Greenman case. In this strange report, five adults and seven children claimed that they had been defending their farmhouse against 12 to 15 short alien creatures described as little green men who had claw-like hands, pointed ears, and eyes that glowed yellow. The farmers claimed that the siege by the aliens lasted nearly four hours and they defended their property with guns and whatever else they could use as a weapon. The entire family of five adults and seven children all arrived at the local police station after the event to report on the attack, uh, after which four city police, five state troopers, three deputy sheriffs, and four military police went to the fa farm and reported finding evidence of property damage caused by gunfire. Uh, the official explanation for this exchange of gunfire is that the farmhouse had been the victim of an attack by horned owls, and they had mistaken the owls as alien beings peering into their windows with glowing yellow eyes. While this is considered to be a very prominent case in the history of ufology, it was officially declared a hoax by Project Blue Book. Uh, now, the Kelly Hopkinsville account is a bit ridiculous on the surface of things, and there are many possible explanations for this event, uh, mostly involving moonshine and intoxication, which is the first thing that comes to my mind. But we do have 12 different persons corroborating the same information, uh, though there was no physical proof to substantiate the claims. And I really only mentioned the Kelly Hopkinsville uh, goblin attack because it does stir up the imagination. And if it did indeed happen, it would have been a rather terrifying ordeal. 
And this could easily uh, fall into the category of cryptozoology, along with the Mothman or Chupacabra, because aside from saying little green men, uh, there isn't much to clearly define this as being a case of aliens coming out of flying saucers just in order to attack uh, a farmhouse in Kentucky and a family in Kentucky. Um, several prominent accounts uh, we could cite here uh, during the 1950s and 60s. Uh, needless to say, Interest in the UFO phenomenon exploded during this period, with hundreds of books coming out on the subject uh, to greater and lesser degree of value and importance and credibility. Uh, this is also the time that uh, abduction cases begin to sprout up, or claims of being taken to other planets, or having communication with extraterrestrials, and we start to enter the era of New Age ideas uh, that are now co-mingling with the reports of ufology, which lead us into the 1960s. And we start to see an evolution of the genre, which slowly begins to merge with more New Age types of belief systems, uh, telepathic links with the Cosmic Brotherhood, and so on and so forth. So in stating this, dozens and dozens and dozens of books begin to flood the marketplace and to flood the tabloids, uh, magazine articles. And we're going to fast forward about a decade to what is perhaps the most known abduction case in the history of ufology, uh, as well as one of the most notable, believable, and perplexing and that comes with the September 19, 1961 case of Betty and Barney Hill. The account of Betty and Barney Hill is considered to be uh, one of the, if not the most well-documented and credible accounts of UFO abduction in the history of the medium, and it pretty much set the tone for most of the abduction reports and accounts of missing time, which were to follow over the next several decades. Now, it was during a holiday trip in September of 1961 that the Hills decided to cut their vacation in Montreal, Canada short as reports of an approaching hurricane were looming. Upon hearing the report, they began to head back home to Portsmouth while driving south on U.S. Highway 3 shortly after 10 p.m. on September 19th. They both noticed what appeared to be a bright star that seemed to be following their vehicle. And the bright object continued to trail their vehicle and draw closer. And that's when Betty decided to grab some binoculars and claimed that she saw a double row of windows on the craft. Barney Hill, who was skeptical, decided to stop the vehicle and uh, have a look for himself. And what he saw he described as a glowing pancake. And upon closer inspection, he believed the vessel would be some type of secret military weapon, secret military vehicle, and believed he saw a military pilot gazing at him through one of the windows. The couple became apprehensive as the glowing pancake continued to gain on proximity, so they raced back to their car and drove off, now noticing an odd beeping noise that seemed to be coming from the rear of their car. They claimed the sound made them drowsy, and the next thing they remember is that they were suddenly fully awake in their car and a few miles further along up the road they had been traveling, and they were unable to recollect how they got there. They were feeling odd and uneasy. They continued to drive home. Upon their arrival, they realized that while they'd expected to be home by 3 a.m., the clock now read 5.30 a.m. The next day, when Betty went out to the car, she noticed that there were a dozen or more shiny circles scattered over the surface of the trunk. Fearing the possibility of radiation being involved with the peculiar aircraft from the night before, the couple grabbed a compass and moved it uh, moved on the car to examine it. And whenever they came to a place where the, a shiny silver circle was evident, the compass needle would begin to spin wildly. And considering this, and they're missing two hours of time, uh, they decided to file a report of the UFO with the Peace Air Force Base in Portsmouth just uh, 36 hours after the incident had taken place. Now, it wasn't until many years later 
when the files of the SAC 100th bombing wing in Portsmouth became declassified, that researchers discovered that the Peace radar had registered an unknown craft at the exact same time that the Hills had encountered their UFO. In October of 1961, the couple met with Walter Webb, who was an investigator and chief lecturer for the Boston Museum of Science Planetarium and a representative of the UFO group NICAP. Uh, Webb was convinced of the sincerity of the Hill's claims and believed that something uh, other than a simple UFO sighting must have happened to the couple. Over the next several months, the Hills began to experience physical and psychological effects from the experience. Betty had strange nightmares where she was being examined by little uh, humanoid beings, while Barney began to suffer from high blood pressure, ulcers, and a strange ring of warts that began to appear near his groin area. The couple visited a series of medical specialists during this time and eventually ended up seeking the help and advice of a psychiatrist who also had an extensive background in hypnotherapy. Uh, over the next six months of sessions, the Hills both relayed the same detailed uh, information while being under hypnosis. They recalled that their car stalled in the middle of the road and the, a band of little men dressed in black uniforms abducted them and led them into a nearby circular craft. Barney recalled feeling like a rabbit trapped before the gaze of a predator and described the leader of the craft as a German Nazi wearing a shiny black jacket, cap, and scarf. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please let me to uh, allow me to repeat that last part. He described the leader of the craft as a German Nazi wearing a shiny black jacket, cap, and scarf. And I wanted to repeat that part because it is an element that rarely comes up when people are discussing the case of Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, that their first impression of the craft shortly before the report of their abduction was that they thought it might be a secret government aircraft and then later reported that the leader of the vessel looked like a Nazi. Um, to continue on with this story, Betty said that a long needle was inserted in her stomach as part of a pregnancy test and Barney stated that a circular device of unknown purpose was attached to his groin. The couple were then given a tour of the craft and told that they would never remember their experiences. Uh, shortly after, the Hills were released back to their car and recall the UFO appearing like a huge bright orange ball as it departed. Now, while the account of the Hills was known throughout circles of ufology, uh, with some magazine articles and the like, it wasn't until 1966 when author John G. Fuller published the cult classic book entitled The Interrupted Journey that the Hills case gained nationwide attention as the book went on to become a bestseller. Uh, this eventually gained even further notoriety in 1975 when NBC television broadcast a movie entitled The UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones as Barney Hill and Estelle Parsons as Betty. Sadly, Barney Hill died of a brain hemorrhage in 1969, but Betty went on to become a well-known celebrity and spokesperson in the UFO community. Uh, Betty eventually uh, passed away uh, in 2004, in October of 2004, at the age of 85. She never remarried after Barney's death, and she never recanted their account of the abduction that took place in 1961. Excuse me. Now, I've always been fascinated by this case, and I uh, do believe it's one of the most important abduction cases that are on file. Uh, primarily, it seems to me that the Hills were always expressed as being very sincere in the events which happened to them, and always uh, relayed by anyone who had the chance to interview them, as well as compliments from their friends and families and fellow members of their church where they attended. And Betty stuck by her story for 40 years. 
And while the Hills case became famous due to their story, they eventually and initially, they initially were not seeking fame for this. It took several years for their supposed abduction to become public knowledge. And only after the publishing of a best-selling book detailing the events, uh, the medical conditions they suffered from in the months and years after the event are on public record, as is their six months of therapy sessions and hypnotherapy. Now, I, I genuinely, genuinely believe that the Hills were convinced that something strange had indeed happened to them on that night. And again, my biggest takeaway from this is that their initial belief was that they were viewing a secret government experimental craft and that the captain of this vessel uh, seemed to them to be a Nazi. The case of the Hills is pretty much the standard by which all other abduction reports are now compared. The next case on our journey leads us to what is perhaps the longest-running, most elaborate, and most documented case in the history of modern-day UFO lore, and that is the fascinating accounts of a one-armed Swiss man by the name of Edward Albert Meyer, most famously known as Billy Meyer. Meyer, who was born in 1937, claims that telepathic communication with members of the Pleiadian race of aliens began when he was only five years old and continued throughout his entire life. Now, before we continue, it's necessary to say that uh, while the accounts of Billy Meyer's experiences are elaborately documented and overwhelming in abundance, uh, the Meyer's case has been widely debunked within the UFO community as being nothing more than a giant hoax. That being said, Billy Myers is one of the most prominent and influential personalities in the history of ufology, and he produced thousands of pages of notes about his encounters, as well as hundreds of beautiful photographs of the supposed spacecraft uh, that he was in communication with. All of this, despite only having one arm. And while Meyer has claimed communication with the superior race of Pleiadians since he was a very young child... It wasn't until 1975 that physical contact with the Pleiadians was finally achieved. He states that he was telepathically told to take his camera and go to a remote field near his home, and when he arrived, he witnessed a large circular-shaped aircraft float above the trees before landing nearby. And he was then held immobile by an energy beam as a slender and beautiful female with golden hair stepped off the craft and telepathically communicated that her name was Simjazi. The Palladian informed Meyer that he had been chosen as someone who could be entrusted with sharing their message with the world. By 1978, Meyer had taken thousands of pages of notes, all related to his meetings with Simjazi and other Pleiadians, as well as hundreds of photographs of their spacecraft and relayed that he'd had over 100 meetings with their representatives. Among other things, his notes revealed that the Pleiadians were one of several races that had been visiting Earth for many thousands of years, and that the Pleiadians inadvertently had caused two major destructions on Earth in the past that had destroyed our civilization. Both of these cataclysms were technological in nature, or due to warfare between the Pleiadians and other invading civilizations who wanted the Earth for themselves. Myers shared an extensive series of notes and information uh, that claimed to reveal the history of Pleiadian involvement on Earth and the hope to create a new golden age for humanity. And while many believe this entire series of events as detailed by Meyer uh, to be one of the greatest hoaxes of all time, there's no denying the overall positive message that Meyer, or the Pleiadians speaking through Meyer, uh, were trying to convey. And while Meyer was made famous for his UFO photography in the late 70s and the 80s, uh, it was perhaps the popular program The X-Files, which brought Meyer back into some notoriety in the 1990s. 
It is a photograph by Billy Myers stating, I want to believe that famously hangs in the office of Agent Fox Mulder. Interest in Myers' photographs and his message from the Pleiadians is still alive today and still capturing the imagination. As of this broadcast, Billy Myers is still alive at the age of 84 and still promoting his UFO cult and still living in Switzerland. Original copies, as well as prints of his photos, are still highly sought after with collectors and those who are interested in UFO lore. Now, next up uh, on the list, we have the amazing account of Travis Walton, perhaps made most famous by the cult classic 1993 film Fire in the Sky. Uh, The abduction is stated to have taken place in November of 1975 when a then 22-year-old Travis Walton was among six other men who were clearing brush and debris at uh, Sitegraves National Forest in Arizona. The abduction happened at just past 6 p.m. when the workers were driving home from a hard day of labor, and they soon noticed a strange UFO hovering about 100 feet away in the woods. Walton told his boss to stop the truck and then jumped out and ran toward the golden, golden glowing craft. He was then shot by a bluish bolt of energy that knocked him off his feet. His co-workers, in a panic, drove away as fast as they could. After driving about a quarter of a mile, they viewed the craft flying away over the trees, and it was at this time they decided to turn the truck around and see if Walton was okay. Upon returning to the site, Walton was nowhere to be found. Fearing for their friend, they drove to the nearby Herber, Arizona, and reported the event at the police station. While the sheriff was skeptical of their story, a search party looked for Walton uh, over the next several days. Police, believing that Walton had been murdered and that the six men were trying to cover it up, uh, requested that all six men be given lie detector tests, which might confirm whether or not Travis Walton had been murdered and if any of the men were trying to cover it up. The conclusion of the lie detector tests were that none of the men had killed Travis Walton and that they all believed that they had seen a UFO that evening. It was also determined that the men were involved, if the men were involved in a hoax, that none of them had any prior knowledge of it. Now, we can debate the validity of a lie detector test, uh, especially in 1975, but the point is that all six men passed the lie detector test and it was reported that they believed they saw something that they couldn't explain. Now, Travis Walton was unaccounted for for nearly a week until he called home from a telephone booth on November 11th. And while some of the pieces were missing in his memory, he then detailed to the police many of the strange and terrible things that had taken place with him over the past several days. He detailed various intrusive and painful experiments which were conducted on him. Uh, He conveyed that he had tried to fight back and being trapped and paralyzed and He said he witnessed not only the iconic greys with their giant black eyes and small alien bodies, but he also viewed normal-looking humans who were also members of the ship's crew. He recalled laying down and having a sort of gas mask placed over his face at one point, and the next thing he remembers is that he woke up in the middle of the road, uh, having no idea how much time had passed. And just like his six co-workers, Walton, as well as his brother and mother, all passed several lie detector tests, when, which only further verified the story. Everyone's stories matched and really could not be disproven, at least not to a lie detector test. Now, one of the things that's most stood about, out uh, for me about the case of Travis Walton, uh, who is still alive today at the age of 64, and he's still living in Arizona, uh, it's, it's about 15 years ago. Uh, it was on the radio program Coast to Coast AM uh, when he was a guest one night. And he briefly mentioned the possibility 
that the craft he had been taken aboard and that his entire abduction could have been a government experiment. He stated that he truly didn't know what had happened to him back in 1975, and that he was open to the possibility that it was a government black ops program experimenting on U.S. citizens and even the possibility that the Greys, as we know them, was some kind of a genetic experiment or a secret cloning and crossbreeding program. And that is one of my biggest questions as well. Uh, it is what if a huge part of modern day UFO reports and sightings and abductions are indeed a governmental black op? Uh, what if they've been genetically manipulated and cloned alienations of a human species and are using them uh, with advanced and secret propulsion technology in order to create crossbreeds and genetically spliced mutations meant to deceive us and run a psyop against the human psyche. Now, in the lore of ufology, we have dozens of different alien species which have supposedly been introduced into the narrative. Uh, from the angelic, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed Nordic types, to Pleiadians, to Draconians, and the iconic reptilian shapeshifter, to the greys, to little green men, to giants, to interdimensional tricksters, to beings of light who can blink in and out of existence and move between our realities with just a mere thought. But it was in 1917 that the master occultist and man of many faces, the dark magician Aleister Crowley, rendered a picture of a being he had supposedly summoned by the name of Lamb, L-A-M. Uh, this was when the idea of a giant-headed and giant-eyed gray alien being would truly dig itself into the human psyche. Uh, Crowley, he's a figure we could dedicate an entire episode to, uh, but he described and illustrated an otherworldly being named Lamb, which he claimed to have summoned in 1917, and this would pretty much be the precursor for all future representations of the greys or little green men or the alien beings with giant craniums and deep black bug eyes. And this touches upon the occult element of this topic. And the occult element of ufology uh, goes along with Hitler's belief in a supreme race and hidden technologies and a hidden history or a theosophical ideal of artifacts and relics of great power and intelligences far beyond mortal comprehension. But one need only see the illustration of Crowley's lamb in 1917 to recognize the face of the alien and the Martian and the interdimensional being, uh, which was to be reported time and time again over the next hundred years. And in keeping in line with this idea of occult symbolism of the UFO phenomena, we also continually have elements of the underground or bases beneath the planet or beneath the ocean from Area 51 and dozens of other prominent underground bases in the United States. We continually have reports of rumors of strange activity taking place or secret technology and experiments uh, at these locations. Now, America supposedly at least has 150 deep underground military bases, otherwise known as DUMBS, D-U-M-B-S, and that's just reporting what's on record. Uh, the idea of the underground, of the hidden, of the secret, of the experimental nature of alien influence has always been part of the narrative, going back, whether it be a hundred years or a thousand years or more. And this idea of an ancient alien source, uh, one possible explanation, leads me to a book published in 2010, 
after the death of its author, Mac Tonys. Now, Mac Tonys was a very prolific blogger and author and futurist who coined the term crypto-terrestrial to try and recognize a possible race of beings who have been living inside the Earth for many thousands of years, harboring advanced technology and manipulating historical events behind the scenes. Now, these beings are not actually of otherworldly origin, but instead they reside uh, within the idea of the hollow Earth, and uh, they have been guiding humanity and our progress for several thousands of years. Now, UFOs are not from out there in the cosmos, but from within our own planet and even within our own subconscious. And with that, I recommend the book The Crypto Terrestrials by Mac Tonys for further research on all the topics we've discussed in today's episode. Likewise, I want to recommend the book UFO, The Complete Sightings by Peter Brooksmith. And if you're feeling extra adventurous, take a look at the book The Gods of Eden by William Bramley and Behold a Pale Horse by Bill Cooper. Or you can dip your toes into Eric Von Donica and, and Zachariah Sitchin and Jacques Vallée and Whitley Strieber and a dozen other researchers and take a spin in Ezekiel's wheel and draw your own conclusions. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we've covered a lot of ground on today's episode. And there was so much more that we could have talked about and so many more reports and research and testimony we could have discussed. And perhaps we will do that on a future episode. I just kind of wanted to touch bases on a brief history of ufology. And I hope you found this episode to be somewhat informative and thought-provoking on some level. And as we start to close today's episode out, I'm going to try, I'm not, I'm not going to try and force my opinion on you. Because who really knows the truth behind all of this? And if we were to take the time to talk about the issue of ancient aliens and mythology and folklore and historical reports stretching back several hundreds or thousands of years, it only further complicates this issue. Uh, But I'm going to allow for my primary opinion on this matter, and that is in terms of a possible psychological operation, as well as a symbolic message that the human psyche seems to crave, and that is the idea of a savior figure. Uh, What was once anticipated as the return of Jesus Christ has now taken on the notion of the return of our ancient alien ancestors and overlords. Or alternately, uh, we have the need for demons or the devil to blame for all of our problems. Uh, This duality, it's been ingrained in humanity for thousands and even tens of thousands of years. We've always been trying to come to terms with the perceived duality, uh, not only of nature itself, but of our human nature. And I can't help but to think there have always been psychologists and folklore experts and comparative mythologists and social engineers uh, that have been using our own thoughts against us. We can look at the Catholic confessional. Now, this idea goes back to Babylonian times, 3,000 plus years ago. And it was the idea of confessing all of your sins and misdeeds to the religious authority. And this is where, in my opinion, that we get the idea of the therapist's couch and the birth of psychology and the manipulation of human psychology. Uh, and that it, was just, it wasn't just coming in from 100 years ago with Freud and Jung that we have, have psychology. That profession goes back many hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, and that is dealing with trying to understand and then perhaps even to manipulate the human psyche and human character traits for your own uh, benefit, how to best cultivate human thought and human character traits, and how to make humanity something that was more manageable and could be simulated on uh, mathematical graphs and charts. 
The idea of the extraterrestrial or the interdimensional being has always been with us. The idea of the shapeshifter and the trickster, whether it be through fairy lore of 200 years ago or the UFO lore of today's crop circles and sightings. And there have been hundreds of sightings over the past 25 years, with eyewitnesses ranging in the thousands, as well as documented video evidence that something is indeed taking place in the skies above us, and perhaps as well as the ground beneath us. Uh, yet we seem to be no closer to the truth than we were back in 1947 with Roswell, New Mexico. All I can say is to be very wary and suspicious of anything that might come out of the Pentagon this year in regards to these subjects, if anything is actually revealed at all. One only needs to look so far as the topic of Project Bluebeam and the idea of faking an alien invasion to understand that our government, unfortunately, really can't be trusted for much and that everything seems to have an ulterior agenda. Now, I want to close today's episode in relaying something important. If you can't tell, I am a skeptic when it comes to most things of this nature, but I also have an open mind, and I've been researching these topics for over 20 years now. And the quote-unquote known universe is said to consist of anywhere from 200 billion galaxies to 2 trillion galaxies, with an estimate of 100 billion stars per galaxy, which might harbor life on a surrounding planet in their solar system. We are talking about 1 billion trillion stars with 10 times as many planets as possible suitors for life and possibly intelligent life. And it would be foolish and naive and very self-centered to believe that Earth and humans are the only intelligent life in the vast and endless universe. However, it might also be a little bit gullible and naive to believe that humanity has been created by or influenced by an off-world race. We are literally a tiny needle in an endless ocean of the cosmos, and even if our species does coexist with other intelligences in the universe that are capable of long-distance space travel, who's to say that their civilization didn't die out a million years ago, or that they perhaps won't reach that level of galactic travel for another million years? We can use the mathematical simulations of the Drake equation all we want to try and understand how many planets might be out there harboring intelligent life, but we are likely talking about a one-in-a-billion chance of contact at this point in our history. And that's only if the time frames of our civilizations match up at the exact right moment and didn't miss each other by a few million years. Or maybe UFOs can travel through time. And if they do exist uh, or are of an extraterrestrial origin, maybe we're dealing with the same species and perhaps even the same beings throughout the entirety of our human history. But they're just jumping back and forth through time. The possibilities are literally endless as is the imagination and theories regarding all these topics. Maybe they are here to warn us of our own human arrogance and technological advancements and nuclear power. And maybe they're here to control us. Maybe they're just here to observe us. Or maybe every bit of it is just a psychological operation meant to manipulate our beliefs. The topic is far from being solved, and the enigma and paradoxes of ufology will not be disappearing anytime soon. And that's about going to do it for today's episode of Conspiracy Porn. I thank you all for listening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed our brief discussion on modern-day ufology, and it's perhaps perked your imagination or provided a little food for thought. And please feel free to hit me up at conspiraporn.com or my Facebook page if you wish to add any insight or perspective into these topics. I'd be happy to keep the discussion going. And uh, while you're at it, you can also check out my personal blog at www.primordialproductions.info. 
as well as the website for all of my original art, which is for sale right now at www.geneticmemory.online. I'll try to keep those websites as active as possible moving forward. And once again, thanks for listening into today's episode and hope you'll stay tuned for episode seven in the next week or so. In close, I'm going to end the program with one of my original songs entitled Valhalla that kind of resonates with the themes of today's episode. So until next time, thanks for stopping by and peace profound. (laughs) 